the chances of someone really, really messing it up that isn't me on the vintage machine, which is all mechanical and mostly metal parts versus like a newfangled computerized one with the beeping and the things like feels a little safer. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Fair. Welcome to the Asian Sewist Collective podcast. The Asian Sewist Collective is a group of Asian people from around the world brought together by our shared appreciation for fiber and textile arts and our desire to see more Asian representation in the sewing community. In this podcast, we explore the intersection of our identities and our shared sewing practice as we create a space for Asian sewists and our allies. I'm your co-host, Ada Chen, and I'm recording from Denver, Colorado. Denver is the traditional territory of the Ute, Cheyenne, and Arapaho peoples. I'm a Taiwanese-American marketer turned entrepreneur, and these days you'll find me running my all-natural skincare business called Chuan's Promise. That's C-H-U-A-N apostrophe S, Promise, in sharing my marketing tips on my blog. Most importantly for this podcast, you can find my sewing at i.hope.sew on Instagram. And I'm your co-host, Nicole. I'm based outside of Chicago, the original homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Ojibwe, the Potawatomi, and the Odawa people. I'm a Philippine-American woman, a lawyer by day, and a sewing enthusiast the rest of the time. You can find me on Instagram at Nicole Angeline Sews. Before we dive into this week's episode, Nicole, can you tell us about your current sewing project? I think listeners will be proud to know that I made a twall. Oh, I did. It is a wearable twall. <laughs> I did use the label from our amazing label kit that you can buy uh, from us. It says, this is a wearable twall. But I have really been wanting to dive into pants. And I'm like, okay, entryway, joggers. And then I was just going to make them. But I'm like, okay, I'll just I'll make a twall. I'll just make a straight size. And then I'll figure out what the adjustments are. And I got a lot of adjustments to make, I'm sure. And so it's just stuff like, I always have to grade my waist out, but my oftentimes my hips and my chest measurements fall within the same size. Oh. So this twall is, is my waist size, but a couple inches larger on the hip. And then I also have full thighs and calves. So I'm like, it's probably right that I'm starting with this. I had tried the top-down center-out method before, and then I just got really frustrated standing there in my underwear in front of a mirror with one <laughs> pant leg on, and I was like, you know what, forget it. I think I'll revisit it, but you know, if joggers seem like a good place to start, and they're super comfortable, I made them from flannel. But what I'm hoping to make is a pair of quilted joggers. I don't know what happened there. <laughs> quilted joggers. I think they've been in for a couple seasons, but I've been wanting to make a pair. So I'm like, all right. I I picked a pattern. I'm going to work with a seamwork wit woven jogger pattern. And I thrifted a really pretty pink quilted bed sheet and two pillowcases for 12 bucks. I just saw it on the shelf while I was thrifting with a friend. And I was like, oh, I've been wanting to make joggers for forever. It's whole cloth, you know, so it's it, you know, it's just really nice. And I figured thrifting the fabric is like the lowest risk way. And the label said queen size and it was 12 bucks, you know? So I was like, yeah, that's fine. I don't have to quilt things myself. Uh, and when I got home to, to wash it, I rolled it out and it's actually king size. Oh my God. So lots to work with, but I'm like, let me just try to figure out some adjustments. And so I'm starting with the flannel twall and, and we'll go from there. I do want to make a cool looking quilted set. So it's January. It's It's very middle of winter for Chicago, but I'm sure by the time I get around to it, it'll be really like nice, like cooler spring type thing. So definitely the joggers. And then I was actually thinking like a blazer would be kind of cool, you know, Make like it a, fancy. Yeah. And then 
I could wear that quilted blazer or jacket of some kind, you know, with non-joggers. It just seems, it just seems like the right thing to do, but that's, that's where I'm, uh, where I'm at right now and working on that. So all the pats on the back for twalling everyone, please. <laughs> Cause you all know, I don't do that. How about you, Ada? What are you working on? I'm not twalling this, or this could be considered a <laughs> I uh, cut out a big four jacket pattern, Vogue. I will not name the pattern because the pattern itself and them as a pattern line, not very size inclusive, but it is like a tweed long jacket. And it's still a little too cold to wear that as my like daily jacket, but it is like a nice in-between layer. And I find that I've been gravitating towards making outerwear so that I have like it's something I always will have in layer here so I feel like I get a lot more use out of it Mm -hmm. versus like a t-shirt which I wear and then have to wash and then I put off laundry for like a month or as many underwear as I can get away with and so I cut out um from this boucle that I got probably I think in 20 late 2020 so I've been sitting on it a while I still have probably at least one and a half yards so maybe i shall make a matching set for inside the jacket right because i bought five yards and it was like 60 inches wide so this thing's like wild but it's not very thick tweed so i need to cut the lining which will be made from leftover satin i have from a dress that i made for a wedding party or as a wedding guest last year I think it might be like upholstery satin because it's got a little more structure to it than like regular satin one. Mm, And then I also bought some Alpha Tech, which is like an insulation layer or it can be woven in or like at the mill, like made into the fabric or it can be made as just like a lining layer. So I figured I have a wool. I think you remember I made a zero waste Brigitte Helmerson coat last year out of wool that I had from Fab Scrap. Yep. And that one's not very it's it's probably like 50 degree warm it's not like 40 degree warm so yeah. I'm currently like my parka is for 30 degrees and then this one will be like the 40s to 50s and then the other one will be the 50s to 60s and then it will be like jean jackets and whatnot so I'm like slowly filling in all my temperature bands that it will hit sometimes here and yeah so the alpha tech is to kind of give it a little more oomph in the warmth department <laughs> but I did not wallet and we'll see some of these pattern pieces are really large (laughs) that's what i've heard about like big four i don't sew a a ton of them anymore but that that all they're all out of whack which is is what it is you know um i'm curious about the alpha tech so i know that i spoke with someone a while back about making a coat and she was really kind she walked me through joanne fabrics i think i I had bought some fabric from her in a D stash and we met up at the local one near us and we spent Aww. 90 minutes chatting. Yeah. And then I saw her again at Rocktails. That was really cool. But in um, New York? Mm-hmm, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, I, I, we were at Mood and I was like, <laughs> Carol? It was I know cool. You. Yeah. She said that you could in, interline with anything. And so she said, try, try just like a flannel, like a cheap flannel. It doesn't matter what it is. And I'm curious with the alpha tech. So how would you incorporate that? Because I'm very bad at, if it's not in the instructions, I don't know what to do. So I'm going to cut it the same size as the lining and probably baste it. Onto the lining. Onto the lining. And okay. then when I put in the lining, it should just be in there. But basically, yeah, it'll it'll be the sandwich between the lining and the outer. And she's right. You can use anything. It's just like for 
living here when like some days it'll be there's like a 40 degree swing between like the high of the day and when I'm leaving the house in the morning it's especially like also if I'm like if it's a coffee meeting day right like I try to sandwich all those in one day and this will be one of those like nicer looking coats I think I can wear to those yeah it's just like I gotta kind of have a little more layer than flannel in between. Yeah. But then I didn't want to be like, how many double layers of flannel can I do? Oh, it'd get heavy. Yeah. Yeah. It'll get kind of bulky and I want to preserve a little bit of the shape and the line to Mm. be a little more close cut because it is like, I have mixed feelings about the house of Chanel now, given the history. And if you don't know the history, you should definitely look into that. It's, you know, it's one of those things that when you kind of grow up in the community that I grew up in, like my mom's friends would always be talking about, like they would love a Chanel coat or suit or whatever. And like, yeah, they would talk about all their bags and the reasons why I know about all the designer bags and shoes is because all these aunties. And so there is, even though I hate it, there is still some of the like, well, I kind of like that style and I like want that, but I don't want to pay that designer when I know I could do just as good, if not better, a job. Right. Yeah, totally. Not to say that I'm like couture level, but like, let's be real. The the ready to wear stuff that they're shipping out, like they're not having the couture level sewers sell it. (laughs) Yeah. It's the same for them. It's ready to wear and they kind of just mash it together. So yeah, I'll let you know how it goes. I don't know. I haven't picked out buttons yet. That's the biggest. How's that going to go? I just organized my buttons and it's so satisfying. So satisfying. I'm a little worried about making the buttonholes on my machine, you know, because she's vintage. She's nice, but it's a boucle. There's lots of like loops on it and fuzz. Alexis from Fiber and Cloth Studio just had a little, had a a couple of posts on hand sewing buttonholes. So (laughs) I, yeah, I think our producer Esther has hand sewed buttonholes as well onto a previous coat. I seem to remember. So you can get some wisdom. Or commiserate with them. (laughs) I might, yeah. Esther, I might be picking your brain for this. Hey, podcast listeners. Looking for a way to support the Asian Solos Collective? Well, we have a great way for you to do that now. And we are excited to announce our first set of merch. We've launched a limited edition set of woven labels on our coffee page. So ko-fi.com slash Asian Solos Collective. And you can get a pack of five woven labels custom designed by our very own producer, Mariko, with some cute sayings from seasons one through three, like this was a panic sew, forgot to pre-wash, or made with fabric purchased while traveling. And they all have really cute designs on them that you should definitely go check out on our Instagram and on our coffee page. And to get your very own set of five labels, you will be supporting the podcast and helping us bring you new content and new guests week after week. So head to ko-fi.com slash Asian Sewist Collective. Today, we are expanding our fiber focus series and we'll be discussing piña, also known as pineapple fabric. Piña is a traditional Philippine fiber made from the leaves of the pineapple plant. Piña was the quintessential item of luxury and elegance in the 19th century Philippines and the finest of all Philippine fabrics. We talked a little bit about the history of the Philippines in our Turno episode, and Pina enjoyed great popularity in Europe and during the American colonial period, which don't think 1700s, we're talking about American colonial period in the Philippines, so 1889 to 1945. And during that time, it became a desirable accessory or fabric for high society. And so 
They would use it in kerchiefs or shawls, collars, sleeves, cuffs, etc. We will put lots of pictures in the show notes for you to appreciate these intricately embroidered pieces. But pino was also sought after as the fabric of choice for Philippines' traditional formal wear during the Philippine Commonwealth era. However, during World War II, the pina industry suffered a setback as it struggled to survive. So I'm curious, we've done, now this is like our second deep dive on Philippine-related fabrics and designs. Nicole, do you have any pina clothing or fabric? I don't. It is something that I have familiarity with as someone who's Philippine-American, you know, seeing and understanding that it's this precious thing in our culture. But I've never, I've never actually owned anything with it. A lot of the barongs that I would see, which we'll talk about what a barong is later on, were made, you know, modern with polyorganza or primarily polyester. And so that's what I'm more familiar with. It is easier to embroider. So we'll talk about the embroidery practice a little bit later as well. But when my grandpa passed earlier last year, we were going through his closet and I found one piña barong. And it was super delicate. It was stained probably from sweat because because it's hot when you wear them. Um, not really sure what to do with it, but maybe something. And we can revisit that later. Oh, I love that you found at least one. Yeah. So what is piña? The name piña or piña with a Y, so P-I-N-Y-A, comes from the Spanish word piña with the N and the little accent on top, which means pineapple. This pineapple is not the same as the ones that we see in the supermarket, but a cultivar called the Spanish Red Pineapple, I think the Latin name is Ananas Comosus, which was likely introduced sometime in the 16th century by Europeans. And the red pineapple still looks like the ones that we eat today, but like a little less yellow and more red pinkish in color. Again, pictures in the show notes. The Spanish Red Pineapple thrived in the Philippines and became a native plant after its introduction. So the plant grows spiny leaves up to two meters in length, so about 2.2 yards. And when it's cultivated for fibers, the fruit is removed early in the growing stage so that the leaves receive more nourishment and reach greater lengths. And after about a year or two from planting, a few leaves are cut from each plant to create textiles. Did you know that the pineapple is also a symbol of colonialism? I feel like we should play a game like how far in the episode do we get before we bring it up? So according to this article from the Smithsonian Libraries and Archives, the article's name is The Prickly Meanings of the Pineapple, quote, For Europeans, the pineapple was first a symbol of exoticism, power, and wealth, but it was also an emblem of colonialism, end quote. This is a fascinating article that you should definitely read about how the pineapple, which originated in South America, made its way to European countries and then to where the Europeans colonized. So due to its rarity and I guess if you've ever had a pineapple, it's pretty easy to spoil. Like it's not the easiest fruit to transport. It was and still is a scarce commodity. When this tropical fruit was finally successfully grown in the colder climate of Europe, it needed a, quote, controlled environment run by complex mechanisms and skilled care to thrive in Europe. Pineapples thus became a class or status symbol, a luxury available only to royalty and aristocrats. The fruit appeared as a centerpiece on lavish tables not to be eaten, but admired, and was sometimes even rented for an evening. The pineapple was also a symbol of colonialism, one of the trophies brought back from the conquered territories, end quote. I stumbled there because I was like, you're not eating that pineapple? <laughs> <laughs> it's just for decor. That is the ultimate 
like symbol of privilege and wealth and power, this rare thing that is delicious that you just sit there and look at it. I, I'm just, I'm just floored. I'm just floored by that. But, uh, but not surprised really. No, there's definitely something to do with pineapples and like good symbols and emblems. And I don't know, but my mom, when we moved in, gave me a pineapple little dish and salt and pepper shakers. And they've been sitting in a drawer since then. Because I was like, I don't, what am I going to do with these? Mom, why? Like, can you just bring a regular, normal pineapple that we could eat it? So <laughs> there you go. At least she didn't bring me a real one to just look at. But there is a lot more to the story of the pineapple. So if you're interested, please give the article a read. It will be, as you know, in the show notes. Pina textile production is mostly found in the province of Aklan in the Western Visayas region of the Philippines. This laborious and time-consuming skill to produce piña is passed on through families from generation to generation. Aklan is the main and oldest manufacturer and weaver of piña cloth. More recently, the provinces of Negros Oriental and Palawan have begun cultivating pineapple plants for cloth production. And there are five steps to producing the piña fabric. So after it's grown, the first step is called pakigye. After being harvested by hand, the thorny sides of the mature pineapple leaves need to be removed before it's laid on a piece of wood board and you need to scrape off the green outer layer using a piece of coconut shell or pottery shards. The first fiber that gets extracted from the leaves is called the bastos or washout according to one of the YouTube videos we will link in the show notes. So this is coarse and it's used for making twine. And then if you keep scraping, so continuous and vigorous scraping will then reveal a second, finer fiber, which is called liniwan, which is used to weave the piña fabric. I'm pausing here because listeners who understand or know how to speak Tagalog, bastos is a word that you are familiar with that is not in the context of piña making. I, I'm just laughing because <laughs> our... What does it mean? Uh, so... Shai Lin, in her, her uh, research and help with this episode, she says that she understood it to be you know crude, ill-mannered, rude. And okay, this is just, I'm just being really immature right now, but hey, you, this is all part of the Asian Sews Collective experience, right? Um, I can hear like grandparents and aunties saying, oh, bastos, which is like someone being like doing something like disgusting or like Ill, ill-mannered or behave so like someone i don't know farting in church would be would be bastos <laughs> so so just like when i was reading this i i, I can't i can't not laugh I, I say bastos in the next section and i'm going to keep it together okay so the real content back, back to what everyone's here for according to the book baro philippines fabrics and fashion a single leaf consists of 75% bastos and 25% liniwan, which is the refined material. The gently extracted liniwan are then cleaned and combed in rivers or running water to avoid knotting and to remove the leaf pulp so that all that's left behind are white, opaque threads. After being hung dry is step two, pagpisi cleaning. In this step, the smaller and shorter fibers that are not useful are removed by hand. And then once that's done, the fine fibers can be hand-knotted together to create one long seamless filament in step three, padnuot, finishing. So this filament is then spun onto spools and then warped onto a sabungan, which is a warp wheel in step four. I'm going to do my very best to pronounce this word very clearly. Pagtalinuad, 
which it takes apparently 15 to 20 days to warp enough yarns to complete a sukkot of 18 to 20 bukos, or 54 to 60 meters of cloth. All of this was pulled from the Philippines Folklife Museum. Finally, the last stage of piña weaving is called paghabwe. A petal-framed loom is used to weave the piña cloth. The loom has a foot-operated treadle with an extended overhead warp beam with two harnesses and two treadles. The warp is wound into the warp beam and then is threaded into the bottle, the benting reed, or sukod. The benting allows the warp to open when the treadle is stepped on with your feet. The sukod is used to press the weft to thicken the cloth. Because of the delicate nature of this fiber, the weaver needs to be careful and gentle when feeding the shuttle between the warp yarns and the inserted weft. The weaving process takes about eight hours to produce half a yard of piña fabric in a simple weave and a quarter of a yard in multicolor or small pattern designs. The amount of time spent on the cloth depends on the intricacy of the design. To make the weaving process even longer, piña yarns can also be very sensitive to weather. They become brittle during the hot summer months and under the heat of the sun. And during rainy days, they can get moist and become sticky, so the petals of the loom can become hard or stiff to manipulate. Listeners, if you're interested in watching this process, because it's one thing to hear us describe the setup, but then it's another to actually see it. We will link a couple of YouTube videos in our show notes. And in the olden days, the weavers decided on their own design. The designs usually took the form of flowers, fruits, coconut trees, nipa huts, or other designs concocted by the weaver's imagination. A nipa hut is a small hut that has a thatched woven roof on it. And the designs may have been copied from cloths, which have already been in design, or inlaid into the fabric with the aid of graphing paper. In the case of the latter, the design is made on the warp. One of the weaving techniques is called pili, also known as suksuk, which is an inlaid supplementary weft design technique similar to brocade by inserting pattern wefts with colored cotton or silk thread during the weaving process. This type of weave is commonly used for traditional garments without embroidery. Another technique is rengue, which creates a lacework pattern by skipping threads in both the weft and warp. There's also the tablero, which is a technique that produces a checkered weave. In a recent interview with Raquel Elisario, an award-winning piña weaver, she describes how she weaves both designs based on customer commission and designs of her own creations by combining the different weaving methods and experimenting. Her work can be found on Instagram, which is also, again, in the show notes. Nicole, I'm curious now that we've gone through the whole production process. It sounds very intense. Any thoughts, feelings about this process? Well, I had no idea how piña was made. Again, my associations as a Philippine-American person, you know, I understood it to be part of our heritage, precious, expensive, rare now. And I, and I see why, given how <laughs> difficult and intensive the, the process is. So I get it. I get it. So what does finished piña look like? The finished piña is sheer, lustrous, and very lightweight, very delicate. They are typically woven in a width between 24 to 32 inches, so on the narrower side for anyone sewing with it. Most piña are left undyed, and it has this like light ivory, beige, ecru kind of color, but it can also be dyed using natural dyes because it is a natural plant fiber. These hand-woven fabrics are colored with vegetable dyes originating from leaves and barks of different trees, and they are usually dyed when they're used as part of the turno, so... Episode 42, our deep dive on the Terno. 
Pina has a similar drape to organza. Remember, we did a whole episode on silk. So episode eight, check it out. We're always go back to our, our content. It's always, it's always good to review or listen if you haven't yet. It's lightweight, but stiff in order to hold embroidery details. Pina fabrics are traditionally decorated by making designs during the weaving process or delicate and detailed handwork embroidery, also known as borda in Tagalog. Calado is a type of drawn or cut work involving cutting and pulling threads from a fiber after which areas may then be embellished by embroidery to create a variety of geometric patterns. There are a myriad of designs and we'll link a few samples in the show notes. I like how you said Borda because I totally read that word and I was like, Borda, like Borda patterns. <laughs> I'm not sure if that was the correct pronunciation. Like Borda. Yeah, I think that's how I would pronounce it. It's probably closer than Borda style. <laughs> Definitely not Borda. <laughs> <laughs> Sombrado, also called shadow work, is a form of applique that was applied to Pina. Vegetal forms, scrolling vines, etc., those were cut out from cotton fabric and then attached to the reverse side of the pina fabric to create kind of like a silhouette effect. Embroidery themes over the years, you know, they change just as styles do. And so they went from church-themed doves and crosses, colonialism, <laughs> into more nature-inspired flowers, grass, animals. So it's really interesting to kind of see the motifs change over time. Definitely the crosses are a nod to colonialism. And for those of you who are, again, Philippine, part of the Philippine diaspora or live in the Philippines, like, you know, very Catholic. But pure piña, as we've said, is expensive and it's delicate. Nowadays, it's often mixed with silk, cotton, or polyester to one, increase strength, two, increase opaqueness, and three, of course, to reduce the cost. Our Asian Sewist Collective's very own Shailin, who has real-life experience with piña, describes the hand of these piña-blended fabrics. She says that piña combined with silk and cotton tend to have a more delicate drape, with cotton being added to increase opaqueness to the material. Piña combined with abaca, which is the banana plant, and we discussed it in our Turno episode, makes the piña become stiffer due to the thickness of abaca fibers. So how did Pina get popular and what kinds of garments do you make with it? Who wears it nowadays? We are going to get all into a little bit more of the history of the use of Pina fabric. Pina is one of the few luxurious sheer lace-like textiles from the Philippines known as nipis next to juicy, which is raw silk and sinamai, which is woven from the banana plant abaca for millinery purposes. Piña was considered a luxury export item from the Philippines during the Spanish colonial period and gained favor among European aristocracy in the 18th and 19th centuries. Popularity in the West rose as many European royals received gifts of piña cloth originating from the Philippines from loyal subjects to commemorate momentous occasions. For example, a christening gown was gifted to Alfonso XIII by Pope Pius X and a piña handkerchief as a wedding present to Princess Alexandra of Denmark in 1862. In the Philippines, piña is traditionally used to create barong Tagalog, baro, or alampay, amongst many other garments. The Filipino men's formal garment, called the barong Tagalog, also known as a barong, is the national dress or is a national dress of the Philippines. It's a collarless, semi-formal man's dress shirt with long sleeves, often embroidered and worn untucked. Example photos again in the show notes. They are traditionally made with piña or juicy. 
It also stands as a status symbol of the wearer because only the affluent can afford to own a pure piña burro. The shirt's popularity waned during the American occupation, aka colonialization, of the Philippines. However, in 1953, President Ramon Magsaysay wore a barong at his inauguration and throughout his presidency. Other leaders followed in his example, and in 1975, President Ferdinand Marcos issued a decree designating the barong Tagalog and the barosaya, the indigenous women's attire, as the official national attire. Public and private employees began wearing the shirt to work. The first female president of the Philippines, Corazon Aquino, also often wore a barong, and modern-day versions have shifted the fabric choice into organza, silk, cotton, polyester, like Nicole mentioned. So if you're interested in learning more about Filipino garments in general, we do a deeper dive in our History of the Turno episode right before this one, episode 42. Colonialism again, my friends. Spanish colonialism also brought nuns to teach girls needle arts with applique, sombrado, and openwork, colado, being the main techniques used to embellish piña fabric. The popularity of the Maria Clara Ensemble and sustained style over the decades has grown the need for piña. Europeans and Americans exoticizing the textile also increased its popularity. When America took over the Philippines, the American cultural influence drastically changed Philippine fashion. By the early 1900s, less costly substitutes like the Swiss betile, Swiss muslin, and cotton were imported to compete with handmade textiles for the Maria Clara Ensemble. In 1939, Economic protectionism encouraged the preservation and use of made-in-Philippines items, including piña. During World War II, the Japanese occupied the Philippines from 1942 to 1945. Scarcity during the war meant recycling old garments, and lack of importing from the West means piña and other locally handwoven fabric productions were encouraged. After the war, demand for piña products once again diminished, with many other Fibers such as silk, satin, etc., available as options and fashion trending toward more Western styles. Piña also became increasingly expensive over time, making its use for formal wear. And then during the Marcos regime from the 60s to the 80s, piña garments were only worn by the elite. In the 1980s, Maria Beatriz Patis Pamintuan Tesoro, also known as Patis Tesoro, a designer successfully campaigned for the Philippine government to revive and pass on the cultural heritage skills, including the production of piña. The government also funded training programs for new artisans to preserve the traditional and specialized skills. Tesoro's research work with Dr. Lourdes Reyes Montinola, an author who wrote the seminal book on piña, helped revive this moribund industry, which again is flourishing on the island of Panay. Non-governmental organizations like Hobby, the Philippine Textile Council, are also preserving knowledge and skills for piña and other Philippine textiles at the same time, while also modernizing the local textile industry. Textile weaving competitions also continue to encourage younger and newer generations of artisans to participate and preserve the craft while innovating designs. And according to Wikipedia, piña weaving has been nominated for the UNESCO Intangible Cultural Heritage Award. Contemporary piña is often combined with other fibers, like we said, primarily silk, so piña seda. And in addition to embroidery, fabric may instead have painted or printed designs. Piña or piña blend fibers are commonly used by Filipino designers on the world stage and on the runways. 
Of note, here are a few designers of Philippine descent to keep an eye out for. So Oliver Tolentino, a Filipino-American designer based in Beverly Hills, specializes in eco-friendly fabrics. His piña gowns have been featured around the world and brought the fashion spotlight to piña fabrics. His gowns are also quite colorful. He said in an interview, quote, the colors reflect his heritage and make the garment a perfect balance of silhouette, fabric, and hue. Next up is Joseph Aloysius Montalibano, a finalist in Project Runway Philippines who started his fashion brand Aloysius that features Philippine indigenous textiles. His 2016 New York fashion exhibit features hand-stitched collado embroidered piña in gowns and dresses. And Gabriel Bustos Santos is an avant-garde designer based in Manila in the Philippines. His first fashion collection incorporates piña to a dark romanticism theme as a way to question the romanticization of piña as a fabric, which is pretty cool. I agree. It also seems rare for non-Filipino people to use piña aside from Guope, who is a Chinese fashion designer, for their fall 2019 couture collection, which was inspired by the idea of like an alternate universe. In her collection, she decorated the piña fabric with elaborate beading and embroidery so I don't know like I wonder I see that and then I'm like how much did you take from like the history of this fiber and textile and how much do you just kind of go that's a cool fiber I'm gonna use it on my collection and put it on the runway so we will have photos for you to look at of all of these designers in our show notes yeah, I think we're going to touch on cultural appropriation later and I'm not saying that uh, Google Pay has done that just that, you know, I have this such a strong association of piña with my culture. And I think, you know, the use of an item of someone, the cultural significance for someone else's culture isn't automatically cultural appropriation, but it makes me curious. And there is, I think we've mentioned a few times in the podcast, a lot of migration in and around all different parts of Asia. So I've said before the, you know, the oldest Chinatown in the world is in Manila, Philippines. So, you know, I think... It's just something worth looking at. And I haven't looked at their designs. So I'm just, I'm just curious. And as always, getting inspired by our conversations here on the podcast. Another contemporary type of piña fabric is called piña tex, like with an X at the end. Piña tex was inspired by the piña cloth and the barong and was developed as a, quote, sustainable vegan alternative to leather. It's worth noting that piña tex is different from traditional piña cloth in that the leaf fibers are from a different type of pineapple that, and also additional processing is required to manufacture piña tex. Dr. Carmen Hiosa at the Royal College of Art in London developed piña tex and founded Ananas Anam, the company that manufactures piña tex, with joint collaborations with Bangor University in Wales, Northampton Leather Technology Center, Leitat Technological Center in Spain, alongside Nonwoven Philippines Inc. in Manila, and Bonditex SA, a textile finishing company. Anana Sanam teamed up with Dole, the pineapple company, to create Pinatex by using pineapple leftovers and leaves after a harvest. So it does use materials that would not otherwise be used, so repurposing them. And the pineapple leaves are processed to extract fluffy fibers, which are made into a felt-like non-woven material. This quote-unquote piña felt is then coated in resin or plastic to actually make the piña tech. The Dole company and their family could be like a whole 
other episode of a different podcast about colonialism and how they functionally overthrew the Hawaiian monarchy in the late 1800s and how that has had ramifications even through today. But we're not going to go too deep into it. So we highly encourage you to read about this history and we will have plenty of links in the show notes. I personally definitely encourage you to read this if you enjoy visiting Hawaii or plan on visiting there anytime soon, just to be a responsible person in understanding the history and the relationship of the Hawaiian people and the rest of the world, especially America. You can't romanticize Dole with Hawaii, which a lot of people do, knowing the history of that. So definitely check it out. Just as a short aside, I do feel like we've been saying colonialism a lot this episode, and it's not incorrect or a bad thing. I think in my mind, I'm just thinking, you know, some folks are like, you're always talking about, you know, white supremacy. And I'm like, but this is our history, you know? And I think some people shy away from pointing out that things are a direct result of colonialism. But I think it's important that we continue to normalize it because how else are we going to understand our history? And of course, hopefully avoid it in the future, right? Agreed. So back to piña text, which is text, not text, piña text, which is is different from piña, but something to not confuse with piña. Because of the additional processing the fibers undergo for the piña text process, the end product isn't actually fully biodegradable. And the main claims to sustainability is that the use of plant waste is the base substrate. So piña text has been used in place of items that traditionally leather would be used such as bags, shoes, wallets, watch bands, seat covers, clothing, and jackets, all that. So the use case of piña text is definitely very different from piña cloth, Um, you know, heavier, opaque versus light and airy. And I think this is here so that we know the difference, right? Really, we're focusing on on piña fabric today. Any thoughts on piña text, Ada? I was like all on board until you got to the line about like, it's coated in plastic. And then I'm like, well, that's not really like better quote unquote than right now what's out there for vegan leather which like if you see vegan leather just it's plastic plastic like it's just plastic rebranded and so there are different i know lots of people have different thoughts and feelings about the consumption of animal leather and there's so much work going on right now on trying to make this type of plant-based quote unquote leather replacement whatever And I'm just like, we're at an interesting time where, yes, this innovation like needs to happen, but do I want it to still be covered in plastic? No. And do I think it's going to be at all similar to Pina as a fabric? Absolutely not. Right. And also, I guess I am left, so I am very curious about it. I think that we've talked about orange silk and orange leather, but when you say the final product is coated in plastic, I'm like, well, then why don't you just the plant wait, let the plant waste biodegrade on its own? Right. I just, you turned it from something that could biodegrade and return to the earth into something that can't, which seems a little strange. But then there you are balancing like animal rights interests versus climate interests. So, or environmental interests, I should say. So anyway, it's interesting. As always, I'm curious, but I don't know if I'll ever personally pursue it. But again, it's good to note that when you see piña text, definitely not the same thing as piña. And then, you know, there's a question which our producer put in the chat, you know, how durable is piña text fabric without the resin? So like, what's the point of it at the end of the day? 
But back to piña itself, today piña is still produced in the Philippines. The delicate nature of the liniwan fiber continues to be hand-produced by small enterprises. Artisans continue to combine various weaving techniques to hand-make beautiful yardage of piña cloth. Of course, technology today means production could rely on machines over the end-to-end handmade process. The Philippine Textile Research Institute has explored ways to mechanize piña with machine-assisted fiber extraction since the 1970s. At the Institute, a number of industrial machines are also used to replace the piña handmaking process, including an industrial decorticating machine, Newward, which is a machine that has a motor with multiple blades that scrape to reveal the fibers. So instead of using those shards or a coconut that you would use, and then a fiber softening machine that uses water and chemical baths to soften the fiber instead of, you know, washing it in a body of water. There's also a cutting machine that will cut the piña fiber into one to two inches so they can be combined with other material to become yarn, which is ready for weaving. Did you see my face when you said chemical bath? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it kind of reminds me of like when you're doing the morning process of of dying. True. I I just was thinking throughout while we've been recording, I was thinking about my grandpa because he wasn't involved in piña production, but things like, you know, a handmade like wooden horse that you can sit on and he would have an attachment at the end to shave coconut. Like Mm. just the process of like remembering seeing that and imagining artisans doing this and going into a river and to remove fibers. I mean, you said chemical bath. I was like, (laughs) (laughs) but that's, that's how things have evolved. It seems, but I'm glad to hear that there are still um, hand to end production of piña in the Philippines. But outside of the Philippines, piña production uses leftover plant leaves from pineapple plantations after fruit harvest. India in recent years has begun production of piña to use up plant leaves, the pineapple leaves, after the fruit is harvested in an effort to reduce agricultural waste, according to a journal article. Simple machines were also developed in India and Malaysia to extract plant leaf fiber. Again, as always, see our show notes. A similar initiative to repurpose pineapple leaves from farmers post-harvest continue to be made in the textile industry in Taiwan as well. I've been waiting for pineapples in Taiwan to be like this. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, geopolitics aside, if you know anything about the current geopolitical climate, I think China is actually the biggest place where Taiwan exports its pineapples and then it became like a whole tiff is the polite way of putting it, uh, where they started actually saying they wouldn't take the pineapple. So then these pineapple farmers had to figure out where to send all of their ripe fruit uh, because it was kind of like a, not a bait and switch, but like a, we'll take them. Just kidding. We're not taking them anymore. What are you going to do with all this fruit? Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a really cool Asian American, Taiwanese American owned shop called Yunhai that is in the U.S. that actually started importing dried pineapple after that whole thing went down. But I forgot to put that in. And the story I put in to share was actually that my dad would tell me about uh, hiking through pineapple fields when he did his military service because it's compulsory military service for X number of months, years, depending on when you did it and whatever. It's just it's a big part of the culture and not it at all. But he used to actually tell me about like marching through the pineapple fields. And then they were like, I think they were like 18, 19, 20, like hacking off pineapples, hacking on them as they were marching through. Why not? And then the other thing that pineapples, I guess, get produced too, instead of just fruit. 
and then their leaves being reused is uh, pineapple cakes. So you can find those in most Asian supermarkets, I think. Yeah, but I'm glad to know that like the fibers from all that pineapple harvesting is also used, perhaps not for piña, but for other textiles of some sort. And I might just, just go do some more research about that. So now that we know all about pineapples and piña and piña texts and where we are in the land of all these textiles. Nicole, are you interested at all in sewing piña now that we've talked about it? So right now, I'm interested in eating some pineapple. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds really good right now. My, my best friend is allergic to pineapple. She listens to the podcast. Shout out, Barb. Sorry you can't eat pineapple. But yeah, let's talk about pineapple. I'm like, mm, that sounds so good right now. But piña, right. I can't actually see myself sewing with it anytime soon. Um, you know, usually listeners are <laughs> hear me say, oh, I'm going to do that now. Oh, let's do this. I think, you know, partially because it's seen as so precious. I've used that word a few times during the recording and I don't really know what to do with it anyway. So I don't want to acquire it and then like sit on it. And I don't know why necessarily, because y'all know I acquire fabric and sit on it. <laughs> we all do it. We're like, oh, I like that. I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but I'm going to buy it. I don't know. I just feel differently about maybe going through the effort of finding, you know, uniquely sourced pina fabric. So maybe next time I'm in the Philippines, I'll, I'll track it down and then think of something to do with it, you know, just have a piece of my heritage. In the last few years, you know, I've started to investigate other, you know, pieces of my cultural heritage that are things like, you know, like gold, jewelry, shell, that type of thing, and and slowly incorporating and learning more about symbols and and all that. So I'd like for it to be a part of it, piña to be a part of that. And if anything, you know, I mentioned that there was one piña barong in my grandpa's closet, and I'd probably start there, you know. I did text my mom right before we started recording because I was thinking about it. I'm like, do you still have it? Is it still there? I should have taken it, but I, I just, again, it was precious. It was also a tough time, like a more tough time immediately after his death. And it's like, I don't know what to do with this. And it's like, holy and like stains. And I'm like, I'm not just going to hand wash this. I don't know what to do with it. You know, it's precious because it's the fabric. It's precious because it's him. But I do think that I'd like to do something with it instead of it just sitting in a closet. So maybe a wall hanging, you know, I don't necessarily know if I could get enough out of it to make something to wear, but just something to have him around and to also, you know, honor my culture in that way. But I don't know when the next time I'm going to be in the Philippines is going to be, but I have lots of textile related things I want to do. So um, <laughs> it will certainly be on the list. Um, what are your thoughts after learning about Pina this episode, Ada? First of all, I think it's really cool that you have that in your family like you have one pina barong from your grandpa and i think it's really cool that it's so the fabric itself is so intertwined with the the barong right like it's it's not that it's only used for the barong but it is predominantly known for and used for that mm -hmm. and so i think that's really cool just having the understanding of it and i'm sure you'll figure out what to do with your grandpa's barong stains and all <laughs> um like would it even be like as sentimental i think if it didn't have signs of wear yeah i don't know right. yeah do i ever want to sew with this fabric now that i know how delicate it is no <laughs> i'm kind of in the same boat i'm not of the heritage i think it's beautiful i can definitely appreciate it and i think i would 
the Philippines is on my list of like places to go to. I definitely want to like nerd out at a museum and sit there and I'm, you know, that weirdo in the fabric and textile museum (laughs) (laughs) taking notes about textiles under glass. And so that I think would be really cool to just kind of see more examples in person. I think it is cool that, you know, it is, if you think about, we talked a little bit about sustainability with Pinatex. It is a sustainable fiber in that it is plant-based. Before kind of modern times, it was completely made in a sustainable way. Like there was no, you know, it's not like leather where we can be like, oh, there are these chemicals and then it was bad. Like you can say that it was washed in the river and now we're using chemicals to kind of, you know, shortcut that process. Yeah. Um, And so I think that's really cool. I would love to see it continue to be preserved as it looks like there's some work around that. I just, yeah, I kind of want to see where the the artisans who are working with Pena now kind of go. And I would definitely say if listeners, you're considering trying this fabric out or seeing if you have any in a family member's closet, like consider what the fabric and the garment mean to you and your family. And then think about what we talked about in our mindful fabric episodes, right? Like if you want to consume fabric in a more sustainable way, but also if you want to perhaps take one thing and turn it into something else that you might have a use of in a different way. Right. And even if you are interested in buying piña fabric and you're not in the Philippines, it's really hard to find piña online. Most sites recommend buying it, of course, in the Philippines or having someone visiting or who lives in the Philippines purchase it for you because it's difficult to figure out, you know, the purity and the quality of it online. That's, I mean, that's the same with all fabric, but in particular, given the pricing of pure pineapple fiber cloth, you know, it's important to really assess that. And they go for anywhere between 80 to 100 US dollars per yard. So it is really pricey. And remember that they are narrow width. So you would need a lot of it. And our colleague Shailin mentioned that, quote, since piña is very expensive, I've personally upcycled a barong in order to use the material once. My original vision was to make a feminine fitting barong for work, but ended up hanging onto it for almost three years before using it on another project. Since barongs are traditional formal wear, I use it as a piece to a client's Filipiniana outfit as a baro. You know what's coming next, Nicole. Should we be worried about appropriating this fabric? So remember the three Ps, people, power, and profit. And as for culturally appropriating the the fiber itself, I have thoughts that are in line with our producer's thoughts, which are that just the fabric itself, it's a plant fiber. It's a textile. It's you know, use it for how you use it. Ideally, pay artisans their the value for their labor on it instead of, you know, buying from maybe a third-party seller if you can find it anywhere. But I do think that wearing a traditional dress made from piña like barong, tagalog, or, you know, turno or any baro, that that's something that you would want to assess before putting that on, given both the cultural significance and ties to the Philippine culture of the fabric itself, as well as the garment. And if you are a person who is not of Philippine descent, again, I'm not here to tell you this is not a yes or no. This is not a you have permission to do this. You do not have permission to do this. But if you come across a piña barong and you are not of Philippine descent, I think I would just pause and reflect on taking that and, you know, turning it into something that is, you know, not 
that doesn't honor that in any way. I think that cutting up someone's traditional garment, if it's a friend, if it's a family member, if it's, you know, like something like me, a, a family member who you'd want to honor and, and preserve and keep or turn it into something new, I think that's okay. But, you know, I think I would just be mindful of the history of it, given that it is so in culturally entwined with the Philippines. And again, I'm not, we are not giving anyone permission or prohibiting anyone from doing things. Please consider the three Ps before you take any action and be open to hearing from people who might be affected by your actions, as always. But our colleague Shailin, again, also agrees. You know, she had upcycled that barong that we mentioned earlier for someone's modern Filipiniana outfit, you know, and that's that was a collaboration between her and the wearer. And it, you know, turned it from one cultural garment to something that enhances another cultural garment. So I think just be just be mindful and again open to discourse and don't get defensive if someone says, hey, let's talk about you know, your use for this. So instead of pina fabric, other similar or substitution fabrics that, you know, you can take a look at that might be a little more easy to find. Pina Seda, which is the silk blend, obviously still very expensive if you look at those prices. If you're going kind of in that silk section of, of fabrics, which again, we have a whole episode on it, there's organza if you want a desired lightweight structure to, and kind of to like save cost, to be honest. It is the top fabric choice for modern traditional Filipiniana when pina is too expensive or difficult to source. Then there's so there's poly organza and silk organza, and those two also have very different price points. You could probably also look at a voile, honestly, which is usually like a silk cotton blend. If you're going for like a opaque one though that's not going to be close to pina like take mm-hmm. a look at the photos that we have in the show notes and you'll see why i say some more sheer silk cotton walls might get you a similar look and effect but not exactly quite the same and listeners if you've had experience sewing with or wearing pina we would love to hear it so send us an email leave us a voicemail we would love to kind of round up your experiences with the textile as well and apart from our show notes, there are a few other places that you can, you know, see piña fabric and other uh, garments made with piña. So check out the Philippine Folklife Museum in San Francisco if you are visiting in person. The online San Francisco Airport Museum uh, has a gallery because the whole idea for this episode was our producer Esther traveling through San Francisco and seeing this really cool display of piña. So check that out. There's also the Lassis Museum, L-A-C-I-S Museum. Google that and there are YouTube videos about Pina. Don't forget to, as always, check out our show notes for more pictures and resources. And if you enjoy these fiber-focused series, revisit or listen for the first time our Silk episodes and our Batik episodes as well. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Asian Sewist Collective Podcast. If you like our show, please consider supporting us on Coffee by becoming a one-time or monthly supporter or by buying our stickers and sewing labels. That's right, we have merch. Buy the labels, they are hilarious. Your financial support helps us with overhead expenses and will allow us to give back to our all-volunteer team who works so hard to provide you with new content each week. The link to our coffee page is ko-fi.com slash Asian Sewist Collective, and you can find the link in our show notes, on our website, and on our Instagram account. 
Check us out on Instagram at Asian Sewist Collective. That's one word, Asian Sewist Collective. And you can also help us out by spreading the word and telling your friends. We would appreciate it if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All of the links and resources mentioned in today's episode will be in the show notes on our website. That's asiansewistcollective.com. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us with your questions, comments, or even voice messages if you want to be featured on future episodes at asiansewistcollective at gmail.com. This episode was brought to you by your co-hosts, Ada Chen and Nicole Angeline. This episode was researched by Cindy Chan, produced by Esther Lee and Shailen Joy, and edited by Clarissa Volando and Henry Wong. Thank you so much to the other members of our collective who made this week's episode a reality. This is the Asian Sewist Collective podcast, and we'll see you next week.